Hey, Jason, good to see you, mate. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Ricky. Hey, Sean. Good to be here. Hey, mate. Hey, mate. Take us back to the founding moment. How did that come about? What was the problem that you were trying to solve? Yeah. So my co-founder, Kim, and I were working on some stuff in the blockchain space, actually. A bit nervous about using that term in, in the real world because we all know it has its crazy side. But we love the speed of it and just the velocity of the way the currency could get around the world really quickly. Projects could get funded instantly globally. People all over the world could get behind projects that, that they wanted to see happening. And we really love that, that borderless, speedy way of funding new ventures. But obviously with blockchain crypto, there's just so many problems. <laughs> I don't think we need to go into that, but it was very difficult to find any real projects that you know we wanted to back or the whole industry was pretty cooked, as we know. So then we looked at equity, traditional equity, and we thought, wow, like this is it's super locked up. It's hidden behind lawyers and accountants and jargon, and you've got to be an expert, and really no one has access. No, no one knew how to use it at all, really. And we thought if we can bring all this amazing speed that technology brings to what's really an illiquid asset, that we could help innovation, entrepreneurship, and just make a big difference in, in sort of the tech space. Yeah. So that was how it all came about. Yeah. Pretty cool. How do you even go about choosing the GoFounder? Does it just organically happen? Because sounds like you guys were already onto something, but how do you go, Kim's the guy, I'm going to jump in and do something that's going to take it global. How does that come about? Yeah. Like it is a hard process. Hey? So for us, I was new to the tech space from like corporate and family office. And Kim was new to Australia from Europe. And so we were two fish out of water. And a lot of people do when you're in a new industry, you're giving a lot, right? I think it's a good strategy for anyone that's in a new space, like just give, 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 give. So we were both volunteering in the local startup community here, just trying to get stuff going. And then when I first met him, I thought, because Kim has previously built some pretty sick stuff, built a really cool company out of Lisbon. And I was actually trying to help him come established here in Australia. And then we were looking at each other and we're like, hang on a sec, we've got pretty nice complementary skill sets here. We're on sales, marketing and finance, and he's sweet on the tech side. And we're both really passionate about innovation, entrepreneurship. So I think there was the opportunistic thing, but then it was like, I felt like our values alignment was really strong. Like, mm. why would I commit mm. like a big part of my life to this dude? Because it's pretty hectic yeah. what you have to commit to. So it was like, yeah. we were really aligned around passion for innovation, entrepreneurship, we were really aligned around our values. So that was more around health being really important to us, our families being really important to us, and then really complementary skill sets. We thought we could, could achieve a lot together. So yeah, probably a few of the big things. You were one of the people I spent a bit of time talking to before I started VentureOn in terms of my thought pattern and what I was thinking about doing and my thesis behind how I think we could do this. And a huge part of people we're talking to nowadays are early stage founders, right? People starting up and starting something from scratch, be it a software company or a venture capital company, is really tough. And I think something that we don't talk about enough is how tough it is and things that are hard and things that you had trouble with. So from Kate's journey, can you think of a couple of things that were really difficult in the early days that you had to get across? Yeah, like it was so hard. I didn't realize how hard it was. I Just to give you an example, after a couple of years, I remember I would constantly just say, because we had about six or eight really smart, committed people just going at it like all day, every day for years. And I remember thinking, 
how does anyone build a startup from scratch? This yeah. just could not be any more difficult. Now, we're from the Gold Coast, so it's like you're slightly at a disadvantage here. No, don't mean to diss the Goldie, but I think if you're in Sydney or or the Bay Area or whatever, like you have a bit of an advantage. But so firstly, just learning, like how do you learn everything you need to learn so fast? You're going from whatever career you're in and almost everything is irrelevant. <laughs> and I don't mean to be too flippant about it because obviously a lot of those skills like selling and interpersonal skills and perseverance and all these like soft skills are very relevant, but the hard skills, mm. a lot of the hard skills are not really relevant for that first couple of years because everything's just so different. So look, just getting access to the right people to learn from was extremely difficult, but that got better over time. So once we got to Brisbane, we learned a bit more. When we got to Sydney, we were like, I was like, the penny drop was like, okay, people here get what I, this is what I needed. That helped me a ton. So access to people was a huge one. And then access to funding. My, my thoughts about funding have changed a lot over the years, but just finding anyone that mm. was financially was excruciatingly difficult for good reason. We had like at the beginning you have no revenue and like no product yeah. no brand no idea and you got to get a million dollars from people you don't know so it's not surprising that it's hard <laughs> no, exactly yeah. and look two points to take one i think you're slowly changing the gold coast environment to be less of a disadvantage because with people like you running around and the time you give back in the community i think that is changing and i know we'll talk a bit more about community later and then my thoughts on funding, I'm a big bootstrap fan of going as hard as long as you can, as big an ARR numbers you can get before you bring people in because mm. that's where I've had most of my success. And I think it's, like you said, it's really hard when you're early to go raise money from people. And I think one of the cool things that you have done with Cake is it's a lot more understandable so people actually see what their equity is worth and where it is and where it sits and how to incentivize people. And that is, or at least it was till you guys came along, a dark art. Right. And it's something that inside Simbro, we didn't bring in until the last two years because it was just a bridge too far to figure out how to do it. So I think, look, when I look at you, what you guys have achieved, to me, I think turning something that was a dark art and really complex and difficult to something that early stage founders can actually use as a way to drive and leverage their company in their early years. Something you should give yourself a huge pat on the back for you and your whole team. Thanks, mate. Yeah. I feel like we solved a real problem and it was literally impossible to do. To do an ESOP in Australia for in mm. the first year was impossible to have it work. Mm. We never mm. saw one that was functioning. And it yeah. took us two years to build the MVP of, the, of an ESOP that was productized enough to actually be manageable by a human. <laughs> so yeah. It was a hell of a task. <laughs> yeah. It's a great use case. Jason, want to pick your brains when it comes to auto operations. So you and Kim get together, right? Great story. You've got an idea. You've got a problem that you're trying to solve. What happens then? What's your early stage priority list look like? Because you're drinking from the fire hose, you mentioned. Like you, so much is coming at you. At that point in time, if you can reflect, mm. what were the top two or three things you were trying to concentrate your efforts on? Yeah, so the first couple of years of cake, in hindsight, turned out to be R&D. And building the MVP was way longer than you would aim for. And I think that it was a function of the team that we had, the, the way of thinking that we, I mean, the way we went about it, the complexity of the problem we were trying to solve and, and the, yeah. like just the sheer breadth of what like table stakes product was in our industry. We had so many features to build. So most of the 
learning that went on early on was trying to build software that people would use without us helping them. So it was like, we need, yeah, we just wanted, we couldn't get the users to use the thing without us just doing it for them. Yeah. yeah. So that was the key was to solve that problem. And it took us like a really long time. Mm. So we, and we wanted to take like a real bottoms up approach. So we went and we worked with the founders, with the customers doing, we started off with capital raising first before we did the ESOPs. So from right. a Dargan perspective, ESOP is like mm. employee equity. So we started off with the capital raising process. How do we help? How do we solve that problem? How do we productize it enough to get people to pay us and use it without our help? That was really hard. Yeah. Capital raising is a really emotional process mm. and it's in two big parts. There's the pitching part and then there's the, the back office part. And in the end, we decided to focus on the back office part because it was, we could productize it a bit better and the emotional yeah. pitching term sheet bit was just way too difficult. So we, mm. we were trying to break the whole thing down into a small elf piece that we could sell it as a SaaS. Yeah. Um, That's an important lesson to learn early, right? Like the ability for ease of use so that someone can pick this thing up and they will use it because if there's too many barriers, no matter how good your software is, people just, until your sales force and you're large enough that they're going to pay you huge amounts of money because you've got to use it. It's really hard to get, get people to actually spend the time and effort in. I think as SaaS has really taken off after post COVID and everyone's looking at software, I reckon usability has become one of the most important parts of a SaaS product. Definitely. How usable is your software? How quick can someone just pick it up, plug it in and use the thing? I think getting that, a lesson you guys learned really early, I think is super powerful. Yeah. Super critical. We also had multiple customers and users and we were trying to work out which one was going to be the one that we would focus on. Mm -hmm. So we had very early stage founders. We had later stage founders. We had like mid-market kind of companies that had, you know, widely held cap tables. We had listed companies. And so we were trying to analyze where we would fit within that pretty standard mm -hmm. kind of S&B mid-market enterprise. We had to spend a bit of time trying to find the right customer. And that's a really important lesson, I think, for all founders and something I always advocate. Every time I see a founder and they've got two customers or they're in the first couple of years, I'm like, get rid of one immediately because you can't handle two customers with no money and no team. Yeah. So, yeah. So once we chose startups, which was good and bad because they had no money. And so our ARPU was like ridiculously small, but same time, it's nice to have a beach head where the competition isn't too great. So we had a really, mm. open, really open space to work mm. within and they're really forgiving. So we could kill them with kindness and brand and stuff and the product was crap. Yeah, yeah. But then we really took off. Once we really honed in on one type of customer, the marketing got better, the sales got better, all the internal noise and mess got, got reduced, everybody got happier and, and the company really took off. So that was a big point in the first yeah. couple of years for us as well. I want to come back to go to market. You mentioned a few things, Jason, but before going there, can you take us through fundraising? You said that was difficult. It's probably the biggest sale that most founders will make in their career. Can you share some tips and advice having gone through that process? What would the younger Jason do now having gone through that experience? Yeah, but I'd like to be too negative about it, but like sure. it's definitely some of the hardest parts of the journey. It's been so difficult. Spend so much time on it. And like Sean said, I would advocate avoiding it as much as possible. But at the same time, 
you still need to so you still need some money normally to do anything spend as little as possible and learn as fast as possible like it sounds super obvious and we can dig into that if we, if we can but yeah, yeah. so yeah it's a real chicken and the egg thing but the more you can do yourself the more you can do in the core team the more you can do while everybody's earning the minimum amount possible and or like not earning for a year or whatever like it's going to change the whole trajectory of your company so i, I do highly advocate that and i think you look your point is really important it sounds really straightforward but we i'm looking at hundreds and thousands of early stage companies and lots of them have raised huge amounts of money and i'm like why have you raised so much money if you're still testing and identifying who you're selling to or how something is working but you're raising money and using it to test that stuff it's inefficient use of capital, right? And I guess that's the bit. So you can be small and work that stuff out. Then when you're taking money, you're using it to scale a process that you've tested in and worked. That's very different from taking money to survive, to be able to go test a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah. that's, that's where my differentiator has always been, which I know <laughs> something doesn't resonate with a lot of people, oh. but like, that's how I look at it. Yeah. I've got a mate now. I've been helping him a little bit and he's super frugal. He's just raised like 120 grand. It's just three lots of 40 K. One of them is even getting like a little bit down the track and he's just doing tons of stuff. Mm. And I feel like that's the new pre-seed just raise like a yeah. really small amount, do all the validate. And then maybe when you do your seed, I don't know what you would advocate, like I'm still learning, but raise less, learn faster. It's up. There's a lesson I've definitely learned. I've always been. I've always been raised from a position of strength and raised with purpose, right? Yep. I am raising $140,000 because I'm pretty sure that this channel is going to go, well, I need to build this for this channel, but raise it at purpose if you're raising at that level so that it's not, I'm, I'm testing, I'm hoping that this thing fits here somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And like smart money, I think people that really are going to come on the journey with you are more and more going towards that. I've always, mm. it's, it's much more difficult and there's much less of that money around but it is way better for the company if you can do it, if you can really have someone that has funding and can come with you and be smart and really be part of the journey. I think it's a huge advantage if you can do that. Um, yeah. So let's dig a bit deeper there, Jason. 120K, it sounds small and obviously there's 40K drops and I get that. But for me, if I'm the early stage founder, what do I need to go get that money? What should my pitch deck look like? Any practical tips? So I'll just call out my equity toolkit. I've been doing this for five, six years now. And what I, I would always go and I'd do this one-hour mentoring session and I would explain this process to people and it would just be the biggest fire hose face you've ever seen of all the steps and all the bits and pieces. I just felt terrible for these poor founders that they didn't have something afterwards to come back to. So I built what we call the, what, my equity toolkit. It's Cakes Toolkit. And so in that, it has a capital raising checklist, a data room checklist. It has raise hacks. It has a valuation tool, has an investor CRM. Like it has a, tools about what legal documents you need. So I think we should put it in the footnote for anyone mm. that wants to yeah. access it. It's a wonderful resource. Let's go for, say, the capital raising checklist. So it's in three parts. So the first part is investor readiness. That's by far the most important part. Like you can't, if you go out and you start marketing your round and you're not prepared properly, it's just mm. going to be a disaster. So in the investor readiness phase, the first thing you need to work out how much money you need. And as we talked about, it needs to be the smallest amount you can possibly raise mm. to hit whatever milestones you need to hit in say 12 or 18 months time. And then you need to 
have, I would advocate you have a short pitch deck and a long pitch deck. So the short pitch deck is, you know, it's th- the old school pitch mantra, 30 point font, no more than eight words mm. per slide, more images, more emotional. Like they should be able to just scan it in one minute and know exactly what Done. I'm doing. That's for me, your intro deck. And the purpose of yeah. that deck is to get a meeting. In the meeting, you pitch the longer deck. And then you send the longer deck afterwards. You don't send the long deck before because you want to be able to build that personal connection with the person and then send the long deck afterwards. The purpose of the long deck is to get to the term sheet or the full partner meeting. So if it's like with a VC, you want to get all the partners on the same meeting, which is, I didn't even learn that until like my third or fourth year in startup. So it's crazy. So if, if you're working with a VC and there's five partners and they never invite you to a five-partner meeting, you're not getting money. <laughs> you just need to learn from <laughs> Or yeah, it's a quick part too. If yeah. you haven't had a coffee with all the partners or three or four of the partners, just get out of your head that you're getting money from them. Like you're not even in their funnel yet. We might be at the top of their funnel or whatever. So the, pur- so the purpose of the long deck is to get to DD or the fi- you know the full partner meeting. In that, there's all the templates out there. I'm not going to go into mm, what's in the yeah, slide. Yeah. What's important in the slide, what's most important when you're pitching is that you are powerful. What is ultra powerful about you? Is mm. it your passion? Is it your understanding of the industry? What is it? And if you don't know what that thing is, go away, pitch your advisors, pitch your mates. Got to get it out of you because if you're not the one in the thousand pitch, you're not going to get money. And if you can't pitch with that power, then you're doomed. That's probably the most important yeah, yeah. thing. <laughs> Solid tips, it. mate. Love, Love it. it. Talk to us about some of the success and the rewarding moments you've had today, Jason, because it sounds like you've had a few. I've been following you on LinkedIn for a few months now, mate. Like lots of good stuff popping up on your profile. So take us through that. Yeah, look, I try and take everything in my stride and I don't like talking about my own achievement, but I'll, I'll do a few things yeah. but just because it's cool to share and I like to... I think from a part of the reason why I built, I'm building cake, say I, but like we're building cake. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why I commit myself to this is to drive innovation, entrepreneurship, and also help Gold Coasters and Queenslanders see what the hell it is and that it's actually yeah. doable. Yeah. So like the, one of the first big things we did was we got into Startmate and it seems like not so much now because it was a couple of years ago, but 500 companies apply, like 12 get in. And yeah. Not an easy thing to do. And so when we got into that, I was like absolutely over the moon. We knew we needed to win Sydney to win Australia. And so at that point, we had Blackbird. We had these loose Blackbird air tree partnerships and we'd have their logo on like everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, then we got Love it. Up, so we're like just pushing the logos. Like obviously you don't want to be fraudulent, but you're like stretching yeah. every little inch out of every deal you do. Of course. To the point where like every now and then someone rings you and gets like, could you take me off the or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> I saw you at a coffee shop. What now? On your website. Yeah, definitely. It all counts. You're going to do that. But that was huge. And then that whole year, we just went nuts. We're doing double digit month on month growth. We just become a SaaS. So we had mm. to kill all our revenue and go from half, half a million revenue every year to zero when we became a SaaS. And that was just like so brutal. Then we just grew. Every month we grew. Yeah. And then by the end of the second year, we were leading the Australian market for our niche. Mm. There was a couple of other little ones at the time. We totally dominated them. And again, I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but it was like, whoa, of we're building a company. We're doing half a million in ARR now. And 
everybody loves what we're doing and the organic traffic is just pumping and the community. We looked around everywhere and we're like, whoa, all these people nice things about us and what we do. And that was crazy. That was, but at the same time, it was been always, it's been a really hard journey, man, because yeah. in the industry, we knew our niche was so small. So literally the same quarter that we became a SaaS, we realized we had to be global. It's yeah. so brutal to be yeah. in that position where you're just like in the double hurt locker. Like it, it's pretty tough, man, to know your beachhead is so far from where you need to be successful. So yeah, so we did, we, we managed to get the first bit done, which was the Australian growth. And then we just jumped both feet into global expansion. I remember sitting in the boardroom or whatever we call it, the meeting room at Cake down here in little old Palm Beach, keep one day going. How many countries are we going to say we're going to go to this year? <laughs> I think we decided 20. So we're going to go to 20 countries in one year uh, was our goal. So talk to me about that because obviously you've seen you in Denver, you fly around all over the place. Sounds like you're getting success and momentum in Australia. You're doing okay. Yeah. How, like global from day one. I We get that. But then how do you focus and decide these are the 20 countries and not just North America or Europe? What does that decision-making process look like? Yeah, one of the things that gave us some confidence, and this is a real credit to the Australian ecosystem mm. and start aid and the give first mentality that exists right throughout the Australian ecosystem. And I think that all great mm. startup ecosystems have this give first mentality and everyone's being helped. So they're wanting to pass it on. We mm. had a dude from Canva, Christian legendary dude one of early engineer there and he helped us understand some of the canva global go-to-market tips and our hypothesis was that equity would be around 80 percent the same everywhere and that we could work out what the 20 percent was and plug and play that to create a globally scalable product mm -hmm. and that actually largely turned out to be true thankfully and so we First of all, tested, we had a vision to get to 20 and was like, do one and then do three and then go ballistic. <laughs> yeah. So we did Singapore first because it's time zone and it's really open, mm. sort of financial system. And it's a bit like a matrix course, competition, regulatory system, time zone, whatever. So we did a big matrix. Mm. We chose Singapore. We tested that first. It looked good. And then we did, we learned about the hubs in our industry. We've got three big hubs. You've got US. Singapore for Southeast Asia and you got the UK for Europe, although that's a bit buggered up now. Europe doesn't really have one. Yeah. A basket case. UK is still cool from, from an investment tech perspective. So then we did US, India, and UK in the seventh quarter. It was crazy. Wow. And then the next quarter we were like, oh, we're a bit stretched. Let's just do one more. Yeah. We did like Nigeria. And so we're trying to build out our global understanding of equity. What's the same? What's different? And it was two-sided thing. So we needed to know about go-to-market and we needed to know about the product. Because And what we learned was from our learnings and it was just our opinion, building a global product was easier than going to market globally. It's a good segue, right? So that's what I've been wanting to get to. You've got a good product. You've formed an early team. How do you decide that go-to-market strategy? Because what works in Australia in our experience doesn't necessarily work in the UK and definitely doesn't work in North America. Even across the ditch here, like it's slightly different. When you're tackling 20 countries in a very short space of time, like what happens? What are the next logical steps? You get to Singapore, what happens? Yeah, pretty much no one. We <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to buy anything anywhere. Yeah. We couldn't work out why. 
we didn't have any enough people or resources. So we thankfully the product bit worked and that was great. We doubled down on that. And so now we have arguably the most global equity solution for startups, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. But the way you have to market and sell to Singaporeans, which is actually the whole of Southeast Asia, mm. not just security and cultures mm. and whatever. Yeah. How you have to market and sell to them is totally different as you do from country to country. So in the end, the way we made the decision was who's buying? Where are they buying? Where, and in the US, they were buying. And so it was actually an easy decision and it was very counterintuitive because in the US, you have all the big competitors, they've got all the funding. And so I never thought in a million years we'd be over there competing with them. But we had to trust the data and the data showed we were succeeding there more than anywhere else. And so we just trusted that and headed in that direction. But so yeah. the funny thing about having big competitors, mate, they also see the market and get people to understand that this is something you need to have. Whereas when you're going into Asia, you've got to do all that education first and get them to understand that this is important. You, uh, something which I know you're awesome at. But it's, it's an interesting segue because my question is going to be the same as really like, I get it. Getting a product ready for 20 countries is definitely doable. Getting go to market right for 20 countries in a year, it would be virtually impossible. And if you've done it, I, I think you should change jobs and come work for us. That's <laughs> the only thing you could do would be ads. If you, like if you could just turn on the ads and go, just tap, yeah. if I turn up all the test AdWords, right. start yeah. buying, I think that's pretty much the only way you could do it. Yeah. But actually, because I'm sure some people do that and it works and they get fucking unicorns in third year or whatever, and that's cool. <laughs> I don't know how common that is. But, um, and I think a lot of people do that and get ads. And I know we were in like hundreds of countries when we we're running Simpro, but we really only had go-to-market machines in certain ones, right? And the rest would be on AdWord or or referral. But the real work is done in the places you're spending time on go-to-market. So for you guys now, it's, it's the US is where the data told you to push hard. Yeah. And I think you've made a point there about, yeah, the product. It's pretty rare that I make a point. <laughs> but yeah, so oh, the education piece. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. They get the problem, they get the solution. And they're looking for solutions. And whereas in Singapore and Southeast Asia, like up until, and even still now, entrepreneurship is almost a dirty word. It's, you only do that if you can get a job, kind of the headwind. And then huge education requirement, which as you said, we can do. We've done it in Australia. I would advocate that we largely built Australia's exalt culture with our partnership network, of course. But go back five years, it didn't really exist. And we had to educate everybody on what the hell it was and why it was valuable and slowly part the way there. Yeah. So in the US, they not only do they know the problem, they know the solution, they're looking for alternatives to the incumbents and they buy first, they buy straight away. And we had a pricing advantage. We've got it with the only marketing and product led solution. And we operate in the early stage niche where the competitors aren't necessarily. So I think it's important for everybody. To, it's not rocket science, but. Look for your space in the humongous market. Like, we're literally, I don't want to give too much away. Like you can even just do one city, literally as an Australian company, but that one city has probably got a bigger market than the whole of Australia in whatever niche you're in. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, well, that's it. Like you said, you identified your customer, right? What is your actual customer? And then you go after that hard. I, mean, I think that's super important lesson for everyone. So easy to get distracted, so easy to try and go up market, and so easy to try and like, yeah. we, could be, we could be signing new partners all the time. Oh, it's new, what new? But it's no, you've got to get the whole machine working. You've got to have the yeah. discipline, build a company. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. 
but don't just go after shiny stuff. Jason, you mentioned product led and marketing led. Just want to dig deeper on that. That's a very contradictory <laughs> statement because product led, it works and it works for some really well. I think there's some really good examples, especially at Australia Canvas and even Zero and some of these machines. At Lassian, you could put all of them in the same bracket. The counter argument will be your marketing spend has to be huge in order for the PLG to be successful. What's been your experience? Because the other thing I've noticed with you, you're a great marketer yourself without perhaps realizing it or not. Like you're doing a lot of that new age marketing yourself. You're putting yourself out there. You're doing the branding stuff. You're running around. So part of that is go to market, intentional or not intentional. I don't know. I'd love to hear from you, but tell mm. us about the whole thing. Like how, what's your go to market engine and what is yeah. PLG and what's not PLG? It's been a funny journey for me. You know, like I'm actually an accountant. Believe it or not, and over the years, I'll have to now admit that I have done quite well with marketing without any training, but I really just put that down to problem solving and perseverance. And I think that those are two of the best skills or, and analytics, if you're really good with numbers, if you're really analytical, if you're great at problem solving and you just persevere, I think you can do marketing. I think perhaps like being able to communicate well is probably the, the final element of that but so several times on our journey we've ended up having done the thing that's now become popular <laughs> I don't know how exactly yeah. it happened yeah, yeah the hard way like community-led because marketing has become so popular the way we worked mm. that out was just that we looked at our customer and we said how do they buy how do they make decisions and i think that's just the most important one of the most mm. important things is like how and when and where they make the decision to buy something and then how do I be there? And with startups, again, I won't tell everyone how to do this, but you've got to be, you just got to be there. So that's how we built the, the partnership network was just trying to be there. And this whole peer buying from peer, it's all, what do they call it now? It's dark social became a big thing. Mm. So we were doing dark social before dark social was the thing. Yeah, creating good content, being within the network, being in the Slack groups. We were just there everywhere they turned. And that's what was my goal. It's like every time these dudes do, do some whatever, I want to be there. I don't want there to be any chance of them to not see us when they need to buy. Yeah. That was our yeah. goal. Be where your customers are, right? Yeah, what do we used to say? Anywhere there's a tradie and a sausage, Simpro would be there back in the day. <laughs> like it's, this is not, this is all, this, then we were talking 10 years ago. This is, the, it's the same theory of how we do. The business, right? Yeah. Be where your customers are. Spend time with them. And then just don't spread yourself too. Now we have a difficult problem. Yeah. We're in LA and we're in so much you could be doing and we could be in Seattle and we could be there. And I'm like, no, in this community here, everywhere they turn around, I want to be there. <laughs> like, yeah. Very smart. If we can yeah. do that, then, and, and be really good people. People want to work with good people. I think that's just almost the ultimate rule of life, business and everything. Like every day I go to work, I want to work with good people on something meaningful and everyone's the mm. same not mm. unless for like wankers sociopaths or whatever let's fuck them off you can throw a little bit on this one sorry oh, i don't say that yeah. i'm filtered for a reason yeah. for australian <laughs> dude you can't not say <laughs> you got to be a really good person you got to be really good to deal with you got to really mm. solve a problem you got to really care you just got to constantly dig into that and then you just make sure there's no way that your customers aren't going to find you and then mm. Like it's all You're over. Off. It's all. Then you got to uh, price it as the last probably piece uh, of that. Yeah, those uh, are easy to solve once you've got the people right. People in the right seat, right? I think that's the part you're getting to, Jason. Given the stage you're at now, 
what would be your top three, top three priorities, priorities. This year? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's about almost evangelism. <laughs> I need to make as mm-hmm. much noise as possible. I need to really dig into we the both core, won title. The core of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Dig right into the core <laughs> yeah. of the problem and just constantly be hitting the nail on the head when it comes to the message of what we're trying to achieve and how we're mm-hmm. changing the world and why it's worthwhile coming on the journey and working with cake. I think that's my top priority. I guess I'll have to throw revenue growth in there. Like, of course. Yeah. Just getting yeah. the finances of the company sold all the time, making sure there's no way that we could ever fall over. So we've got the growth, we've mm-hmm. got the capital, we're running the company really well. And then the third thing is just the team, having a mm-hmm. great leadership team and then making sure that the whole company's team is empowered and rowing in the, the right direction. Those are the three big things that I'm thinking about all the time. Awesome, mate. Sounds exciting. Give us a window into what the next stage of Cake looks like. What's 2024 shaping up to be like for Jason and Cake? Yeah, as expansion is our big thing. Mm-hmm. We're doing really well there. We just 20- hit a big milestone there too, right? Amazingly, we've, we're yeah. now doing more new revenue in the US than Australia. Pretty crazy. Gold. <laughs> you make a spreadsheet and you go, like, this day I'm going to be doing this many customers in this thing we've never done before that's like Rubik's Cube hard. And I've got to like... And then it happens and you just, wow. So we've done that first year craziness and now we need to, I think in the US, it's probably not doubling. We need to do way more than that. It's probably like trip three, four exiting mm-hmm. the first year and the second year is like par for a new market. So just keep that going ballistic. So a lot of traveling. I'll be up and back to the US a lot, which I love. And <laughs> keep my health sweet. Like yeah. I've got a pretty good wicket here on the Goldie. Yeah. So just balance out all this traveling with family and health and trying to be a good dude. <laughs> and, and then a lot of it really is up to the team now. I can't do that much anymore. I've just got to make as much noise as I can and then really just rely on the team, help them as much as I can. But for Cake, so we, we've got a goal to hit a million. So we've got 150,000 equity holders on Cake now and our goal is wow. to get to a million as fast as possible. So that shouldn't happen in the next couple of years. So chasing a million equity holders... <clears throat> We've got a secondary market product coming through, which I haven't really been able to talk about, but it's getting pretty close. So I really want to make sure that founders and early angels and team can get liquidity. It's the big piece of the puzzle. That's always been really hard and really missing uh, when it comes to equity. So we're just bringing out the first version of our our features and products, which is pretty exciting. So really pumped to see those um, come through. Get the MVP going in 2024. It's a huge part of our mission. Exciting. That's very cool. Uh, mm. Mate, all the hard ones are now out of the way. We'll take you through a quick fire round. Everyone who hops on, we ask them the same questions. Your favorite sports team? I'm a big Liverpool fan. It's in the English Premier League. I've been following them for a long time. But yep. Yeah. Oh, nice. How are they going this season? Really good again. Uh, we're yeah. currently second and we have... Big game against Man City coming up on the 25th of November. Yeah. So, yeah, we've been having a, our best period since the 80s. So I'm like a really happy fan. I actually yeah. So I switch between my teams based on whichever one's having a really good yeah, year. Yeah. So, yeah, we're having a really great. You've got Salah there, mate. Years, the moment, yeah. The last yeah. bumping. Yeah. yeah. We won the Champions League and the Premier League and everybody cup in the last few years. So it's been a good time to be a Reds fan. Well, you know. Uh, what about favorite music type? What do you go for? Uh, over the years, I've I've always been a big rock fan. 
I'm a big music lover. I listen to a lot of electronic music, but especially if it crosses over with a bit of rock or a bit of hip hop. But yeah, uh, oh, he, he threw hip hop in there. Oh, yeah, good man. I love hip hop with my yeah. He spends enough time in the community. No, he has to throw the word hip hop in, otherwise, he's not included. <laughs> yeah, so, he's like, oh, rock, yeah. rock, rock. I was like, you're making, you know, yeah. like Sean was, yeah. Sean was grinning for a second. No, no, I, I, I kept it down because I knew it's all out there. Just he's, yeah, he yeah. wants to be part of the, the, well, the scene. Yeah, yeah he's a sassy dude. He's just sassy dude. I grew up in the 90s, man. There was a real big rock, hip hop. Fucking yeah. everything was mixed up there and getting weird and I yeah. love that and then yeah right. the, the data showing that if you want to be in the tech scene you got to add hip hop mate otherwise right. you, you're going to get kicked out of the community so you did good <laughs> yeah exactly what about favorite drink you're a goldie man so I'm assuming like, beer but going to the when I'm out so yeah yeah I'll, yeah yeah I'll drink beers I guess as the staple yeah. I really like my old fashions if I'm gonna take it up a notch I can just right. sit and cruise on a few of those pretty, yeah. pretty nicely as well. I like my nice. whiskeys, done a bit of whiskey over the years. Wonderful. Let's lock that in yeah. for the Monday Stop. we're there, mate. Lock it in. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, we're going to the surf club, mate. You're not going to drink any of the whiskey. That's at the oh, surf. Red we'll label. Take you, we'll take you to, actually, we'll take you to Scottish Prince after the surf club, maybe. You can get a decent whiskey there. Definitely. Absolutely. Sounds good to me. What about favorite place to visit, Jason? Sounds like you've been around and you've been traveling quite a bit, but is there a place you want to get to that you haven't been to yet? Yeah, I've been all around the world over the years. Uh, favorite place to visit? I'd love to get back yeah. to Europe. You know, oh, Mitch, mate. <laughs> I live in absolute paradise here. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I go to the, all these great places and I come back yeah. and I'm like, wow, we're that lucky. But um, yeah, yeah. it's still my favorite place to visit. I'm like, yeah, pardon me. It's probably a bit of a boring answer. I'd love to get back to Europe a bit more. I lived in London yeah. for five years and there's so many spectacular places there around the Mediterranean, yeah. particularly. So pretty keen to get back and check that out sometime nice. soon. Nice. And I know you won't let us down on this one, but peanut butter, how do you like yours? Crunchy or smooth? Got to be crunchy. He's <laughs> yeah, rehearsed it. I'm sure Sean called you beforehand. I mean, talking as we're talking, going, fuck you, better so crunchy. Oh, mate. Awesome. Thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing all your insight. It's uh, super powerful, mate. Thank you. No, thanks so much. Big fans of yours and really grateful that you've had me on. Thanks, dude.